0: Welcome to the Why Invest Podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, planning for end-of-life care is often a thorny topic. It's expensive. It can cause arguments among family members. And let's face it, the outcomes in the UK aren't always ideal. Well, my guest this week seeks to address this. His name is Fred Lloyd George. He is the co-founder of Hamilton George Care, a health business that focuses on living care for private clients across the uk fred was a great guest Uh, we discussed how and why he got into the care industry what problem he was trying to solve and what the future holds for the industry in my mind it's superb business that meets an unmet need in the uk so without further ado this is the why invest podcast fred lloyd george welcome to the podcast hello fred how do you start your career so having left university,
1: I had already decided that I wanted to go and spend some time in the army. So I went to Sandhurst where all officer cadets go to sort of spend a year and learn a um, learn their trade as sort of young officers in the army. I think I might be one of the, the few people who actually really enjoyed Sandhurst. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it what it is.
0: You like institutions, big institutions.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, maybe that's what it was. I guess when you, yeah, you come from... Um, I think I may, no. I think it, the truth is, it's probably because it's something I'd wanted to do for a while. It's something I'd researched a lot about, and actually, when you when you when I was there doing it, it was enjoyable. Like there were moments where I was being shouted at and you know crawling through sort of ponds, but um for the most part, it was it was hugely important to sort of shaping me as a person and sort of I think picked up some well, one some some great friends for life, and also two. You know some really important skills especially as just over a year later i was in a- afghanistan so it was um a hugely busy time but very enjoyable and then sort of found myself back in in london doing queen's guards and marching around with a bearskin, which was also well i, I, I definitely it was a nice way to go to afghanistan and come back and do that i think reading sort of stories of other platoon commanders who started doing the marching around um, I think it can get a bit
0: tedious. Yeah. And so after marching around with the Greens cards, what then drew you to the healthcare sector and what really specifically drew you to the sort of digital healthcare sector? Yeah. I think, I guess, being in the army, I
1: guess I've, I've always been drawn to quite operational, quite tangible businesses. So I like to, you know, work with people and understand that. The product is X and it's going to Y, and this this is the result. So I was very lucky that when I was leaving the army, I was very interested in going to a tech startup. I wasn't particularly interested in a dating app or perhaps an app in general, to be completely honest. But I think I was very lucky at the time that a a lot of venture capital money was being invested in, I guess at the time they were being called challenger healthcare sort of startups. A lot of them were referring to themselves as the Uber of care, but I think that was the time when everything was the Uber or the Facebook of
0: something. Disruptive platform businesses. Yeah, exactly. That everyone sort of decided to be. And then you started off at, at Elder HQ. What was Elder HQ? So it was a, in its simplest form, it was a, they built a platform. So that
1: through an algorithm matched carers to people that required care across the UK. And went straight into the sort of operational deep end. I think I knew that I had a lot to learn. I obviously took a lot of experience from the army, but also wanted to sort of start my career probably a little bit more junior than I could have pitched for. i pretend that that was on purpose uh, rather than sort of uh, <laughs> anything else. But I, you know, I went in as, as a sort of ops lead at Elder and um, learned a huge amount, you know, it's like day one with a headset on speaking to carers trying to you know explain how to get into client X uh, but also looking at consistently improving the product and the process and spent you know three really happy years kind of moved through elder and did started doing a bit more sort of operational sort of strategic projects towards the end so where there were chunks of the business that needed improving um, so spent a bit of time in the regulatory environment and then also spent time doing sort of a lot of time doing customer experience so you know, keeping our churn numbers down and looking at how, how we could improve that experience, especially when you're investing so heavily in technology, how you still work with people and bridge that gap between the sort of operations that people led and then also the sort of technology so that your customer has, still has a really great experience in what is a very people-dominated industry it was a real challenge. I think probably still is a
0: challenge in a lot of those sort of tech care providers. And I want to come on to introduce your business, Hamilton and George. Before I do, you, you had a sort of sidestep into uh, NHS Digital, which you know you went yeah. from very much the private sector to the public sector. What was that experience like?
1: Uh, it was it was it was it was quite. I mean, quite, a quite I'll be no, no, I, I don't know why I don't know why I'm sort of being coy about it. No, it was it was tough. I found it much harder than I thought I would, having gone from an environment where you could, in a day, get three or four different stakeholders from different parts of the business, go into a meeting room in the morning, discuss a problem, come up with solutions, and by the evening, you can see those solutions implemented. And we were in, you know, Pete Dowds, who's the CEO at Elder, was phenomenal in, like, creating that environment when I was there to go to NHS Digital, which, for very good reasons, operates at a much slower pace and to sort of secure funding and secure approval takes an awful lot longer. I think I I found that quite difficult. And I get, you know, the working practices are probably, uh, you know, you work somewhere like a startup and all of that sort of amazing learning from how to manage people that's come out of, you know, Silicon Valley and all of these startups, like, just gets absorbed in a place like that. And, you know, that sort of people first mentality is there. You know, NHS digital, you know, it's a huge beast of, Three thousand people, and they're certainly trying to modernise, but it's it's just it's a very different environment where your you know your first week is to give a really boring example, you know your first week is basically at a computer doing really dull you know fire safety videos, <laughs> and you kind of you know, you know where's where's the action at? And I think sort of um, I found that very tricky in the first few months, but actually. As you learn the system and meet people, like in all these things, you start to be able to understand the sort of the the levers to making things happen. Obviously, COVID, where I was sort of doing social care work, which was traditionally because social care is a local solution, not a national solution. I was doing social care, which is traditionally an incredibly sleepy part of the NHS, quite underfunded and is more of an, an influencing sort of tool. COVID suddenly brought a lot of attention, especially on care homes and interoperability. Hmm. What does that mean? Basically allowing systems to sort of work with each other. You know, people going from hospitals into care homes um, at the beginning of COVID, you know, a lot of our work was making medical records uh, accessible um, from social care to GPs and hospitals. So that was hugely interesting.
0: And so let's move on to your new business, Hamilton George. Yeah, i mean i wonder if you can first of all just give me a sort of an idiot's guide as to the business itself and what problem you were trying to solve in starting it so i think as far as the idiot guide goes
1: i guess at, at a certain point in the majority of people's lives you will either have an illness or a mental or physical illness which is going to mean you require extra support around the home and extra support in order to continue living your life in whatever way you want to live it It's also highly likely that as a family member, someone in your family is going to require that support. Simply, Elder, we work with you in order to navigate what the problems are, what you want the solutions to be. And we handpick a carer who can come in and deliver that for you. So I guess, you know, we really try to bridge the gap between care and lifestyle and they're coming on to why we started Hamilton George, it was very much, I think a lot of what I saw is the care sector is very much about the what rather than the why. So a lot of the messaging at the moment is about, you know, this is personal care. This is moving and handling. This is a neurological care, which is great and very important. But I think we started Hamilton George with the concept being that clinical excellence in many ways should be the baseline actually what you should be looking to do is provide someone who's able to, yes, do all the care pieces. That's a given. That's what, you know, but actually provide extra value. And that's where that sort of bridging that gap between the clinical care piece and actually your lifestyle. So, you know, what is the best day for that person receiving care? Is it, you know, getting around the garden? And I was always really inspired by my grandfather. So I guess a lot of people Going to care because they've had terrible experiences, but actually, I was the other way. I was inspired by my grandfather, who was phenomenally well taken care of. He was able to die, you know, at his home that he loved, um, surrounded by his children and his family. You know, the day that you know he died, he got to go and look at his his roses, and that was like the most important thing to him in that moment. And actually. For me, that was always the image I had of care. And then I was, I guess I was, when I, when I started working in it, it was very much, this is what we're doing rather than why we're doing it. So that's the basis really for Hamilton George is, you know, we're doing it, yes, for the clinical fees, but also to support people to live the best lives that they can and also to support the family who are normally navigating incredibly tricky situations
0: it sounds like you sort of operate in a space in between clinical practices or there's a degree of intangibility to it i wonder as a result how do you get out and get new clients and explain your proposition to people because i know you are essentially a private client practice how do you sort of reach said clients and you know what's the sort of big marketing strategy if there is one (laughs) it's great
1: well exactly i mean it's, it's it's a fantastic question and my my rather scared laugh tells you all. I think like um, someone someone gave me the, uh, the Ogilvy quote recently, which is, you know, I waste 50% of my marketing budget, but I don't know which 50%. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit like that sometimes. I guess the important thing is to look back at the numbers and look at where our clients are coming from. So we have marketing channels which have worked for us. That's great. We, we use them. But actually so much of it is word of mouth mm-hmm. and referral. And actually, Communicating. So I think communicating that yes, we are clinically excellent. We're regulated by the care quality commission. We handpick our carers. We put them through training. That's all really important, but actually also explaining the extra value that you'll get from working with a, a tailored service and a private client sort of offering, which isn't really a term that's been used in care before. I think resonates with a lot of people who, let's say, you know, their father might have dementia. And they Google living care and they've got all of these options, which are quite complicated. All, all look the same, and actually, having I guess our marketing strategy to come to the point is you know we need to make sure that our voice is is clearer and, and different, and we look and sound a bit different because we do operate differently. And the best way that we can do that is in person, speaking to people about what we do.
0: And is the solution always in the home? And you know you reference your your grandfather who was at home, he was able to look at his roses on the day that he died. You know is that always in your mind the sort of zenith? Or, you know, are there strong cases to be outsourced in other environments?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I guess our message is all about what's right for the individual. I guess it depends on the person receiving care. So to answer the question simply, at-home care is not the best option for everyone. And to say that it, it is would be wrong of me. You know, some people need that extra support that comes from a residential environment. Some people quite simply need in order to fund their care when they're older need to move into supported living, you know, cause they'll need to sell their home. So there's lots of different drivers that go into deciding what the best care is for you. And I think one of a lot of what we do, and I guess, you know, we, we discussed this in our previous call is, you know, a lot of what we do as an agency is give that impartial advice. So, you know, we, we're very happy to speak to anyone at any stage of the journey because we're constantly surprised that people haven't put plans in place for their care. So they haven't thought about, you know, where do they want to receive their care? You know, how do they want to receive their care? You know, who's going to be the, you know, the members of the family who are running it? And, you know, we often have calls from people who are sort of in this situation and are just sort of crying out for some sort of neutral guidance to navigate them through the situation. And we'll, and I think in those in those situations, yeah, a lot of the time we can do people you know put a care in the home and they can continue to live at home like they want to sometimes we advise that actually you know what either the clinical needs or the you know the financial requirement is is at a point where you're, you're probably better off looking at other options
0: it is interesting this because i think you know we spend or there's a whole industry and i work in it um dedicated to making sure that you're managing your assets in the correct way to make sure that you're you know the best outcomes for the future you know, there's a whole sort of industrialised complex around that, but it seems to me it's less developed, particularly on the advisory side, sort of the bit that you sit in. Mm. It's less developed, and I wonder why that is, and and why is there this sort of head in the sand attitude? You know, perhaps is this a British thing?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think, it's, but but then I mean we have really difficult conversations about wealth transfer about. Your funeral arrangements, you know, we, we have conversations about whether we, we want to be buried or cremated. We, uh, you know, we have really difficult conversations. It just seems that care is, I don't know if it's taboo, whether people don't want to think about it. I don't know the answer, but I think there's a gap, two big gaps that I can see. And the first one is, you know, insurance, in the insurance market. There's no way that I've seen anyway, and I, maybe someone listening hopefully will tell me I'm wrong and uh, I'd love to have a conversation about it. But, you know, there's no way that I've seen where, you know, it's almost sort of a, a mortgage for care or some sort of, you know, insurance premium, which you pay, you know, as part of your Bupa or as part of your health insurance, where you pay for the care that you want when you're old. And, you know, with one in three of us likely to get dementia as we get older, it seems an obvious opportunity. So I guess that for me I've always been confused that there's there's nothing there. And I guess the other one is some sort of financial vehicle where I say to my wealth and wealth manager or my asset manager or whatever it might be, I say, look, you know, I need something aside which is gonna mean that, you know, my family don't have to worry about my care. And yeah, I haven't seen that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting area. I want to go back to the sort of operations of the business. I mean, where do you sort of see? How do you see the business growing? Because you know, it is quite a. It's it, as you say, you focus on private clients. It's quite a sort of high-touch service. It requires before starting recording. You know, you you said that as a managing director, you're. You're kind of involved with everything in terms of, you know, business development, but also the sort of ongoing operations. I wonder, how do you think about scalability of your business and where do you think the sort of limitations of said scalability lie?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess scalability is less exciting than profitability for me. So, you know, the way we modelled this business and the way we set out is very much, you know, if we can provide high-quality service to 70 to 100 clients a year. You know, that's a very exciting business from a unit economics perspective. You know, we will need to, and essentially we have the, you know, we have the framework of that team available to us now. And it will be about ensuring that as we grow, there's educated people joining the team in that operations team to sort of continue those services. And then it's a case of making sure that I'm available for the clients and making sure that I'm comfortable with the quality of the team who are also speaking to our clients. Um, and I sort of see it as simply as that really, there are bits of technology we can put in place to make that easier to manage. But from what I saw in my time at elder, I don't think it's an impossible scaling task.
0: I see. And what does the competition look like? I mean, who are you up against? Who are you sort of competing for, or is this as a sort of new category?
1: Um, I was always told to be careful of new categories because there's a reason that no one's ever done it before. Um, I wouldn't say we're a new category. I think we're probably focusing on a particular aspect of care that may be forgotten in other operational deliveries. So we're looking as much as the lifestyle as we are the clinical aspects. Agencies like the Good Care Group, um, Drake at Nursing, They've gone through it targeting a similar market with a similar message. Although, again, probably more focused on the clinical aspect. I think as we grow, you know, for us, the exciting thing is, I guess there's two elements to it. There's the clinical excellence. And as I said, that, you know, that is the baseline for us. And, you know, we want to continue to, embed, you know, and ultimately the carer is the product. So we can make it all sound and look great. They can have lots of fabulous conversations with me and the team if the person who arrives at the door is not, you know, highly emotionally intelligent, a great communicator, the whole thing collapses. So we continue to invest in that with sort of, you know, where I'd love to drive it is a sort of recognized training brand, um, you know, almost like the sort of Norland nannies. There's a bit of a gap in that, I think, in the care sector at the moment.
0: I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier on, on the why rather than the what, and how does that feed into your sort of marketing message in that you kind of need to be moving away from features and into benefits to the people who need to be cared for. I wonder, how do you do that? How do you hammer down that message? Because not only is it a message that, by the sounds of things, people don't really want to hear, but it's also a message that people are kind of reluctant to engage with. Yeah, I mean, I I think one of the key messages that I think definitely, you know, for the
1: the hundreds of people we've spoken to, you know, that one of the key messages that people certainly do want to hear is you're going to be treated like an individual. And I think the amount of people who have sort of come to us having spoken to a few agencies and just feeling like, you know, they're just slightly another number or, you know, another person on the CRM. And actually, I think where we've, you know, in our first two years where we've really kind of made a name for ourselves and stood out is in that individual treatment of everyone that comes to us you know what are you looking for what's your problem and how are we going to solve it for you so that's certainly something that i think resonates with people we've spoken to as for the lifestyle i guess it's it's sort of elevating the the care conversation from just you know you're going to have someone to come and provide that personal care i guess it's elevating it to something hopefully a bit more and something that i think a lot of our clients will value so having that ability to have intelligent support this is the thing i say which is like. Whichever way you cut it, whether you go for us, who would sort of price ourselves as the top of the no market, or whether you go for more at the sort of the lower end of the no market, care is going to be a very expensive product that you're going to need to buy for or a very expensive service that you're going to need to buy for a period of time. And I think what we're saying is actually, you know what, if you spend this bit more, you're going to get much more value for your money, and you're going to be treated like an individual, and you're going to be heard, and you're going to see that impact on your on the person that you loved. There's going to be a much clearer instruction on they need to do these exercises every day, they need to get out. I want them to, you know, they've been, after COVID, they've been isolating at home and I want them to get out and get back into the community and socialise and taking the time to understand those little pieces is what really makes a different and I think the,
0: it, it is the value add that we provide. I wonder what brands you sort of look up to. You mentioned Norland Nannies, maybe that's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have any other brands that you kind of either look up, they don't they necessarily need to be in your um, industry, but yeah. brands that really resonate with you and you, perhaps you'd want to emulate. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think, um, yeah, so nolan Nanny's said already. Um, I guess one that's always resonated with me me is, is Patagonia.
0: We get that a lot on this podcast. <laughs> I often ask this question and a lot of people love it. Yeah, I yeah. don't know what those guys at Patagonia are doing. Crikey, they're doing something right.
1: Okay, well, I'll give you my reason, uh, which is probably the same reason as well. But (laughs) I think in an era where we've come out of super high growth, you know, grow at all costs sort of mentality with WeWork and those sort of companies, I think Patagonia sort of stood out. And, you know, Nick Knight at Nike, you know, took him 30 years to get to a float. You know, it's like, I think quality product takes time. And I think that's why Patagonia certainly to me makes sense for as a sort of brand icon and, and Nike to a degree as well in the early days. It's like, actually, you know what, if we build a quality product and we continue to choose the quality over the growth, we'll get a very strong financial position and a very exciting offer for clients. And I think, you know, Nola Nannies, I don't necessarily know if like the actual brand is a sort of icon for me, but definitely the concept of, you know what, you know, Northern nannies have been around for a hundred years, and their whole concept is: we will give you the best nanny. We will train them. We will make sure they don't just understand how to take care of a child, but they understand how to live in a home, how to cook. You know, etiquette. They understand how to like speak to you in a way that you want to understand. And you know, they're going to be the best in the market. And there's, you know, there was an article in the Times at the weekend or the Telegraph about how you know they're being paid up to a hundred thousand pounds a year just for one Northern nanny just because they are that good. So. I certainly think that image of that sort of brand of quality and perhaps exclusiveness is is certainly what I emulate with Hamilton George.
0: Oh, that's an interesting proposition and we will put on on the show notes and everything you know, how we get in touch with you at uh, Hamilton George. But I have a couple more sort of final questions, which I often do to a lot of our guests. And the first one is, you know, what advice would you give to our younger listeners who are perhaps wanting to do something entrepreneurial, who are perhaps in either in the army or in their nine-to-five jobs. What advice would you give to them if they want to kick out and do something entrepreneurial? Having done it yourself, so my advice, which is completely relevant to me, and
1: um, I don't know, maybe the wrong audience for this podcast, but is just make sure you have a really good financial baseline. So I, I personally went and did a some executive education on financial management from LSE, and I think. When you have limited funds and when you are making decisions every day that's going to ultimately impact those funds in your bottom line, you know, having a really clear understanding of your unit economics and what your decision is going to do, it takes away a lot of the noise. A lot of people will tell you to do this. A lot of people will tell you to do that. A lot of people say you have to do this. But actually, what does it mean to how much money you're going to spend? And is that money worth it for your clients? And I think that was the best thing I did was go and get a really good understanding of a p and and other ways of understanding um, sort of ROI and your,
0: your finances. So as I like sound advice, what's the worst advice you've been given? You don't need to necessarily say who gave it to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I got told not to do it, which was probably pretty bad advice <laughs> from a more conservative friend of mine who went to a very good university grad scheme And now, as you know, doing incredibly well where he is. But I think in order to be entrepreneurial, I think there's a huge amount of bravery that comes with that. You need to be humble and you need to listen and you need to ask advice and not rush to things. But also, you have got to be be brave because when you take on other people's money and you are then testing this idea that you had, which seemed like a great idea when you weren't actually doing it. It is scary and and up there with some of my experiences in the army. So I think, yeah, bravery is hugely important. And, uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to just back yourself.
0: And then final question, what's your top book recommendation of the moment?
1: Well, um, I have two young children and a business. So my reading time is mainly based on... The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say The Gruffalo. But the one book book I've managed to squeeze in is the... um, David Whitehouse, Apollo 11, The Inside Story, which is, well, I think it's brilliant in many ways, uh, especially setting up a new business. I think firstly, that whole space race in itself is a wonderful archetype of a seemingly impossible challenge, was the project process of testing and failure, testing and failure to the point where you did something which was inconceivable a decade before with new technology and new drive, reading how the thought process and the sort of project process of the Mercury Gemini and Apollo programs is, is fascinating but also I guess it's nice when you're building a company and it does you know sometimes feels like a huge huge thing that you're trying to achieve that you do appreciate you're not trying to put someone on the moon so that's that's quite that's quite pleasant <laughs> yeah
0: well indeedy Fred L. George thank you for joining me thank you Thank you for listening to the Y Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Fred Lloyd-George from Hamilton George Care. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.